Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Thanks so much for listening this week. Now, oftentimes on this podcast, I have talked about various jobs that I have had, and I thought today I would talk about all the jobs that I didn't get, either me personally or me and my partner, David Isaacs. For various reasons, we were not able to land the job. And it makes the point that no matter who you are, there are going to be jobs that you apply for and you don't get. It happens to all of us, and it happened to me. Now, the first one is sort of an unusual case. This goes back to 1969, and at the time, I am... Uh, 19 years old, and Laugh-In is the number one show in America. Huge numbers. I mean, probably double or triple what the Academy Awards were getting the last couple of years. Just massive numbers. It was a complete national phenomenon. So at the time, 1969, I'm going to UCLA, and on the weekends, my part-time job was I was a sports intern at... uh, full-service radio station in Los Angeles called KMPC. Basically, what I would do is I would uh, check the ticker tape and update scoreboards and write the sportscast for the uh, newscast that would be at the top and bottom of the hour. So that was basically my job. Well, the afternoon disc jockey at KMPC at the time was a gentleman by the name of Gary Owens. And Gary Owens was also one of the main people on Laugh-In. He was the announcer with the deep voice from beautiful downtown Burbank. I can't even come close to doing that voice. Anyway, he was a very funny guy, and he was the afternoon disc jockey on KMPC. And so, for fun, I would write comedy material for Gary for no other reason than to have him actually use some of my stuff on the air was reward enough. I never asked for any pay. I never got any pay. Uh, But even sometimes uh, he would have me come on and do the skits with him. So I got to actually be on the radio. But it was an honor that Gary Owens thought 
my stuff was funny. And so like every couple of weeks, I would just uh, bring him four or five pages of jokes and bits and things like that. So one day I get a call. Could I be in the office of George Slaughter, who was the showrunner of Laugh-In? Could I be in his office tomorrow at 4 at NBC Burbank? And I was like, um, okay, sure. I don't know what he wants with me, but okay. So I go and I meet with George Slaughter, and unsolicited, unbeknownst to me, Gary Owens had submitted my comedy material as a writing sample, and George Slaughter liked it and thought it was very funny, and he offers me a job, a full-time job on Laugh-In. So picture this, and it was like $50,000 a year, which today is like $300,000 a year, or maybe more. This is, again, way back in 1969. Um, And I'm 19 years old, and I'm offered a chance to go on the writing staff of the number one show in America. And I said, is there a way that I could do this part-time? And he goes, well, no, you have to be in the office. Why would you want to do this part-time? And I said, because I'm a student at UCLA, and if I take this job, I'm going to have to drop out of UCLA, and I'm going to lose my 2S deferment, and I'm going to get drafted in three months. And he said, well, uh, the job is a full-time job. And so I had to pass on writing for Laugh-In. So that's one job that I never got. And you think about these jobs, and had you gotten them, what different career paths uh, your life might have gone on? I mean, you know, I might have then been a variety show writer. And variety shows were very popular in the 70s and then died a horrible death. So maybe I would have had a a very successful career and been out of the business at 28 years old. So you never know with things like that. When I got out of college, I wanted to be a disc jockey, a top 40 disc jockey. And I never got hired on any of the quote-unquote big stations. You know, the big stations like KHJ Los Angeles or KFRC San Francisco, WLS Chicago, WCFL Chicago, um, WRKO Boston, WFIL in Philadelphia, Wibbage in Philadelphia. You know, the, the major stations, each major city, had a far and away number one station, CKLW in Detroit. And I would send tapes and like, eh, I get nothing. And a friend of mine who I mention every week on this podcast, Howard Hoffman, is also a disc jockey. Howard has a great voice, also super talented. And he and I were, we didn't even know each other at the time, but he and I were both kind of moving up the radio ladder, going from market to market. And uh, he ended up on WABC, which was like the number one top 40 radio station in the world. But he would send tapes. He told me this. He said he would send tapes to stations and he 
would either get a job as a result or the station would say, well, we don't have anything at the moment, but we're keeping your tape on file. Uh, We liked it very much. Please stay in touch with us. Let us know where you are. If you plan to move to another station, please keep us informed. Uh, We want to make sure that you are on our radar. He would get these letters all the time. He told me this, and I'm thinking to myself, I never got that letter. (laughs) Not once. My letters were just, no, I'm sorry, your tape doesn't fit our needs at the time. No, there's no openings, even though uh, there's an ad for an opening. There's no opening for you. So I would never get those letters. And it got to be so bad, at one point, I had left San Bernardino, and I had moved back in with my folks, and I was sending tapes around, and waiting for them to call and back in those days there were no you know phone answering machines much less cell phones that you could take with you so what you had to do is you had to just sit at home all day long and wait for the phone to ring which in my case rarely did and I recall at one point I was up for a job how's this for glamour all nights at KYNO Fresno, probably paid like 650 or $700 a month, all nights in Fresno. And the program director kept me on the hook for like two months. He wasn't sure, he didn't know. It's like, who cares? It's like you could put a goat doing midnight to six. Kino in Fresno. But for me, I like it. I After two months, I didn't get hired. So I still couldn't crack all night, 12 to 6, in the cow pastures of Fresno. One of the reasons why I tried to get out of radio. I Uh, heard that there was an assistant programming job at WABC in New York. And I flew back to New York, and through connections, I applied for the job and went to lunch with Rick Sklar, who was the program director of WABC, and I pitched all of my ideas and whatnot and didn't get the job. And there, too, had I gotten that job, well, my career path would have steered towards radio and radio programming, and I might not have gotten into TV writing at all. At one time, this was when I was still out of work, looking for jobs as a disc jockey, um, I applied for advertising copywriter. I went to J. Walter Thompson, I remember, and several others, and usually they would meet with me, and then they would give me some copy, and they'd say, okay, go home and write three 30-second spots for this or whatever, and and I did, and I turned them in, and no one ever hired me there either. So David Isaacs and I finally get together, and we decide we want to become television writers. So we write a spec episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, 
and that gets rejected. And then we write a spec episode of Rhoda, which was the spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show. That, too, got rejected. That got rejected by Charlotte Brown, who was the showrunner of Rhoda at the time. And Charlotte now lives three doors down from me. And this has been a running joke because we've become friends over the years. And this has become a running joke between us for lo these many years is I'll see her and I'll say, Charlotte, just read it over one more time. Now, I know there's some story problems, but there's some really funny stuff in there. There's some really good runs. I, I, I think you need to just read the script one more time and reconsider. It's like I'm still pitching that, that spec rota to her. Uh, we never got a Mary Tyler Moore show assignment. Um, once we did sell to the Jeffersons, it kind of put us in a uh, different level career-wise. We were able to get a, a much better agent, and we were at least able to uh, send around a sample of our Jeffersons and pitch various shows. Because back in those days, you had very small staff, staff of writers who were there full-time, uh, and most of the scripts came from freelance writers. So you could make a pretty good living writing on four or five different shows, and you would go in to pitch All in the Family. You would pitch story ideas, and if they liked one, then you wrote an All in the Family, and then you would go and you would write uh, an episode of Happy Days or whatever. You could earn a nice living as a freelance writer. That's not true today. But in those days, it was. And so David and I were finally allowed to go and pitch various shows. We could not pitch the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, we were also sort of the victim of circumstance with the Mary Tyler Moore show because the story editor, Bob Ellison, really liked our stuff and was kind of pushing for us to maybe get an assignment. But they had given a freelance assignment to a writing team that turned in a terrible draft that they had to redo from page one. And the producer, Ed Weinberger, said, that's it for freelance scripts for the year. We're not doing it anymore. So we got shut out there. We did get a chance to pitch All in the Family, which was the number one show of its time. And uh, Milt Josephsberg was the uh, producer who we got a chance to pitch to. He's kind of legendary. There's a very, very famous line uh, from Jack Benny, when uh, this is from his radio show, and probably you've heard this, although maybe our younger listeners have not. But his persona was that he was very cheap. So a guy holds him up and goes, your money or your life. And there's a long, long pause. And he says again, your money or your life. And Jack Benny goes, I'm thinking it over. Well, Joseph Berg was the writer who came up with that particular gag. So it was very cool for us to actually be pitching to Milt Joseph Berg. Uh, did he buy any of our ideas? Uh, that would be no. Then there was the spinoff of All in the Family called Maud. And the way that worked, the story editor was uh, a 
gentleman named Charlie Houck, who sadly has passed away and also became a friend in later years, and two producers above him. So David and I would come in and we would pitch 10 story ideas from Odd. 10. He would like three or four and send them up the food chain to the producers, and the producers didn't buy it. So uh, Charlie felt bad, and he would call us and say, well, you don't have a sale, but you're welcome to come in with 10 more. And so we did. Now, this repeated itself five times. We must have pitched 50 mod ideas, and every single one was shot down. So we never got a chance to do a mod. We couldn't even get in to welcome back Cotter. For whatever reason, I don't know, they just did not respond to our stuff. We were not even invited to come and and pitch ideas for Welcome Back, Cotter. But uh, a year later, the same producer, James Comack, had a show that was picked up by NBC, and it was going to be on the fall schedule called SNP. I believe it was called SNP. And basically, it was David Brenner as a Beverly Hills hairdresser. It was kind of like the movie Shampoo. So uh, the producer of that show was a gentleman named Stan Cutler, who had produced a lot of different things. And he liked her stuff, and he invited us up to his house on Blue Jay Way, up in the canyon, to watch the pilot, and he would tell us various areas that they were looking for. Okay, so we were supposed to go up there at 8 in the morning. Seemed a little odd. We get there, and it's one of these mid-century flat ranch homes. Uh, Like I said, very mid-century, modern for its time, but looks ridiculous like the Jetsons today. And a butler wearing white gloves and the the whole outfit uh, greets us at the door. Like, wow, they still have this? Are we like walking back into 1943? What is this? So he invites us in and asks if if we want a drink. Want a drink? It's 8 o'clock in the morning. No, we... We're fine. We don't need a drink. And there were a couple of other writers that he had invited at the same time. And some of these guys were like old veteran guys who had written comedy in the 50s and early 60s. And and us, two young punks. They showed us the pilot, which was meh. And Stan Cutler comes out. And he's wearing like this velour shirt and a little black dickie. And it looked like a costume from Star Trek. 
again, another weird Hollywood meeting. So he talks about the show and what they plan to do. And we go, okay. And so we go off and come up with story ideas. And then we come back and we find out that NBC, despite the fact that they gave them an order of 13 and announced it as part of their fall schedule, canceled the show. So our episode was, you know, we didn't even have a chance to to pitch an episode. And now I know why Stan Cutler had drinks prepared at 8 o'clock in the morning. There was a spinoff of Sanford and Son called Grady. Similar kind of story where our agent submitted our material and they said, okay, come on in and pitch at NBC Burbank at 3 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. So David and I get there and uh, and there's a a pass for us, a drive-on. And we go up to the office and they're all closed and all the doors are locked. And 3 o'clock on a Tuesday. This should not be. And so we're just sitting there at the door for like a half an hour. And finally we go down to a pay phone. Remember those pay phones? We call our agent and we go, did they all go home for the day? What happened here? We were supposed to have a meeting, right? And she says, okay, hang on. Let me find out. She comes back on the phone a couple minutes later, and she goes, well, they've been canceled. <laughs> From the time we set the meeting at 11 o'clock that morning and uh, and 3 o'clock, the show was canceled. So everyone just left and went home. Well, we had some great Grady ideas, too. We pitched Laverne and Shirley. We pitched a writer named Marty Nadler. And... Uh, I guess there was one opening and two sets of writers. There was me and David and a young woman writer. We met in the waiting area, and we were called in first, and she was called in after us. Now, the young, attractive woman writer wore a see-through blouse. And I mean completely see-through. Guess who got the assignment on Laverne and Shirley? Okay. Um, Now, there's the case of Barney Miller. This is a weird situation. We love Barney Miller. I've talked about this a lot in the podcast and also written about it a lot in the blog. So Barney Miller had really just started a few months before. And the creator and showrunner was Danny Arnold. Danny Arnold was an incredibly talented man who was also, we came to learn, highly bipolar. But he did a show called My World and Welcome to It, which was really great. He basically ran Bewitched the first season and it is so noticeably different from all subsequent seasons because under Danny, it was 
a sophisticated romantic comedy with uh, a witch at the center of the relationship. And then it became just a kid's show and basically stupid. But uh, under Danny, it was it was a smartly written show. So he does Barney Miller. They send our stuff. I don't even remember what they sent by that point. This was still early on. This was before we got MASH. And so we get called into Danny Arnold's office. We go into his office. It's like a Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock. And he was like, boys, come on in here. Read your stuff. Love you guys. Where have you been? Yeah, that was his first line to us was, where have you guys been? How come I don't know about you? Just praising us to the heavens. Come back with story ideas and can't wait to uh, work together. This is a love fest. So we go home, we come up with some story ideas, and we come back like the following Monday or Tuesday. And uh, we walk into his office and says, yeah, what do you got? Bit of a different tone than before. So we start pitching our ideas. And everyone, he's like, no, no, that's off, that's shit. You ever seen our show? God damn it, no, that's terrible. Never do that. No, is this what you think our show is? Well... It's just beating the living crap out of us. And so we figure, well, okay, I guess we're not going to be doing a Barney Miller. And as we're walking out of his huge office, he said, well, you know, the thing you had about uh, Yamana having a gambling problem, I don't think there's anything there. But if you want to try developing an outline or something for that, um, go ahead. But... Uh, I don't think there's anything there. We said, okay. So we went home. We decided to come up with an outline because we didn't want to think, didn't want him to think that he could just intimidate us like that. So we did. We wrote an outline. We turned it in. They paid us for the outline, which in those days uh, was... Very, very helpful in our early writing career when not a lot of money was coming in. So he paid us for the outline and then cut us off. So I figured, well, okay, that was to be expected because he said at the outset he didn't think there was anything there, so so be it. And then about three weeks later, we get a call. Can you guys be in Danny Arnold's office tomorrow morning at 9? We're like, oh, he wants to beat us up again? Okay. So we go to the office next morning, and it was the, boys, how are you? Have a donut. Sit down. How was your weekend? What can I do for you? It was that Danny Arnold. And he goes, I I read over your outline again, and, you know, I think there's something there, and I think we just need to tweak it a little bit here and a little bit there. And uh, and at the time, too, I would bring a cassette recorder and recorded these story conferences just to make sure that we didn't miss anything. So he pitched out various little things, and they weren't even that major at all. We went home, 
and we did a revised outline in like a day, and we turned it back in, and he cut us off again. And his reasoning to our agent was, didn't jump off the page. Well, okay, so we never did a Barney Miller episode. Now you flash forward a few years later, and we are on MASH. We're the head writers of MASH. And Reinhold Wiege had been like the number two under Danny Arnold. And uh, he left to create his own shows. He wound up creating Night Court. So one day we're at MASH, and we get a call, and it's Danny Arnold. And we pick up the phone, and it's the, Boys, how are you? Want a donut, Danny Arnold? How'd you boys like to come and work for me? Reinhold Ouija left, and, you know, and I need a number two, like, you know, right underneath me, and, you know, we'd be working together and doing Barney Miller, and wouldn't that be great? (laughs) We were just like, uh... Thanks. We will think about it, Danny. We really appreciate it. We called our agent. We said, no, no, under no circumstances, no. We would be out of our friggin' minds if we did that. So we never wound up doing Barney Miller. We always wanted to write an episode of Taxi. We love Taxi. But for the first three years of the show, we had a development deal with the studio, so we were exclusive to that studio and couldn't go off and write an episode for Paramount. But then when we went to Cheers, it was the final season of Taxi, and uh, so the Taxi approached us and said, you guys want to write an episode. Under normal circumstances, we would have jumped at it, but it was the first season of Cheers, the writing staff at the time was just the Charles brothers and me and David. And we were really scrambling. And so we figured, you know, politically, it's probably not a good idea. If we had some free time, we should probably be writing a Cheers episode, <laughs> the show that we're like producing and not go off and write a taxi. So we never got a chance to write a taxi. Here's an interesting offer. We were on Aftermash at the time, and we got a call. Would we want to write a pilot that Bill Cosby is doing? Basically, it's the Cosby show. We were offered the chance to write the pilot and stay on as showrunners if we want of the Cosby show. But we couldn't because we were on Aftermash. <laughs> Looking back, uh, at the time, we were like, oh, man, oh, man, we had to give up this. Uh, you know, it felt like uh, giving up laughing again. But Looking back and going, you know what, probably did us a favor. When we uh, had a movie career, we were offered the chance to write Police Academy. Well, not exactly offered. Uh, We met with the producer, and he said, okay, boys, I want to do a movie called Police Academy. We go, okay. And he goes, it's about Police Academy, where 
guys learn how to become policemen. Okay? That's it. You Wait, that's it? You don't have any characters? You don't have any? No. It's a police academy. And we went, well, um, okay. Uh, so we went home thinking like, all right, well, let's kind of see where this might lead. And we get a call from our agent saying, they're not interested in you guys anymore. And we said, why not? And she said, uh, you guys weren't enthusiastic enough about the pitch, about the whole movie. And we went, what pitch? What movie? It was Police Academy. That's the pitch. Anyway, they went with Hugh Wilson eventually, and it became a huge hit and a huge franchise. But when I saw the movie, I thought to myself, <laughs> they wouldn't use our script at all. If this is what they were going for, they would have thrown out our script. Somebody would have rewritten the snot out of it. Uh, but the uh, Police Academy script that we would have written was not the police academy that became this huge mega franchise. So it's not like we missed out on that. That, that never would have happened. Uh, there were a number of times when we were doing movie rewrites and we got some, some good ones like uh, Jewel of the Nile and Mannequin. And then there were others that I don't know that our agent put us up for, and they they passed. And he didn't tell us all of the places that he submitted our names, but I'm sure uh, eight or nine different people passed. And finally, there was an Arsenio Hall sitcom. This had to be around, I want to say the late 90s, he apparently was a monster. He was such a monster that he made the showrunner, whoever it was, cry during a, a run-through. So the showrunner quit, and they came to us and said, would you take over the show? There's only like six more episodes to go. And we'll pay a lot of money. But our feeling was still like, oh, what do we want to subject ourselves to that for? We had been in some bad situations in the past. We did not want to repeat those experiences. And we told our agent no. And again, our agent said, this is what they're willing to pay. And we said, life's too short. We're going to end up you know, in ICU with heart attacks if we have to deal with with this monster that's what the money is going to go for and he made a he made a great observation which is true he said you know you guys would be twice as rich if you were twice as crazy and that's probably true but i feel we were just crazy enough and that is a look at some of the jobs that we did not get. 
As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to the aforementioned Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, and Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me and offer me a job, uh, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Also available on Twitter, at Ken Levine. A lot of my cartoons are on display on my Facebook page. That is Hollywood and Levine. We will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Levine. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.